All rise and welcome back to the Conduct Detrimental Sports Law Podcast, where we'll enter final judgment on all the top sports law controversies of the day and where opinions are never subject to appellate review. I'm your host, Daniel Wallach, legal analyst for The Athletic and the founder of Wallach Legal LLC, the country's first sports wagering focused law firm. On today's docket, a one-on-one interview with Andrew Brandt on the new NFL Collective Bargaining Agreement. Spoiler alert, he is not a big fan of the deal, and no, he does not want D. Smith's job. Coming up next on Conduct Detrimental. Andrew Brandt is a man for all seasons. He has been involved in the business of professional football from all sides. He was the vice president of the Green Bay Packers for nearly 10 years, negotiating all player contracts and managing the team's salary cap. He has also been an NFL player agent, representing players such as Ricky Williams, Matt Hasselbeck, and Adam Vinatieri and he writes about the business of professional football for Sports Illustrated. So Andrew Brandt is uniquely qualified to talk about the NFL's new collective bargaining agreement, and he hasn't been shy about expressing his opinions either. He recently wrote a much publicized column in Sports Illustrated that was highly critical of the deal. The article was titled, The Iniquities of the Proposed CBA, in which Andrew outlined the many problems with the deal from the players' perspective. Among his chief criticisms, one, the players weren't getting nearly enough for giving in on the owner's request for a 17th regular season game. The deal ran too long, 11 years, without any midstream opt-out provision like had existed in the 2006 CBA Uh, which gave the owners the ability to opt out after five years, which they did. And a third main criticism uh, from Andrew's perspective was that the players failed to secure a higher revenue share, something approaching 50-50, considering what they were giving up, which was a 17th game. And for their trouble, they only got an extra percentage point or one and a half percentage points. Uh, he, He outlines a number of other criticisms of the various components of the deal, and and I would encourage you to read the article. It's called The Iniquities of the Proposed CBA, and you can find it on SI. Andrew's article essentially served as a point-by-point rebuttal of the proposed CBA deal terms. He referred to them as inequities, meaning not equitable, not fair, and he suggested that those inequities, which he lists verbatim, could easily be remedied without inflicting significant pain on the owners. It was such an effective criticism of the deal, maybe maybe too effective, that one prominent media member accused Andrew of having an agenda, going after D. Smith's job. Referring to Brandt, Pro Football Talk's Mike Florio wrote, So frankly, it's starting to feel a little like a coup. Take out the CBA? And then the executive director necessarily will be taken out. And Russell Okung 
or some other opponent of the CBA can then install Andrew Brandt as the executive director. This led to an entertaining back and forth between Brandt and Florio on Twitter where all the great debates of recent times occur. Uh, Brandt wrote back, reading pro football talk conspiracy about me being the next head of the NFLPA, one, I'm happy with the jobs that I have. Thank you. And two, perhaps analyzing potential flaws in a proposed 11-year CBA can be helpful to players weighing a decision different than just take it or else views to which pro football talk responded are you saying that you don't want aren't seeking and won't accept employment with the nflpa uh brant replied demory smith can ask me that directly they don't need you meaning florio to be their voice uh to which pro football talk uh wrote back that's not a no hashtag as expected. And then Andrew, uh, getting in the last word of the day, uh, wrote back on Twitter, if instead of trying to play gotcha clickbait, you would like your listeners to hear my perspectives and interests on your show, let me know. To the disappointment of many, Andrew and Mike never did have that summit on Mike's daily radio show. But Andrew did join my podcast. Thank you, Andrew where he addresses Florio's accusation and more importantly discusses the merits of the new collective bargaining agreement from a variety of different angles including sports gambling. As would be expected, it's informative, it's enlightening, and of course it's opinionated. Would you expect anything else from Andrew or me? Not a chance. So without further ado, here is my 40-minute unedited conversation with Andrew Brandt. Uh, hi, Andrew. Welcome to Conduct Detrimental. I've been uh, dying to have you on the program for a long time, so this is an honor. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Dan. I've been a fan of yours, too, as uh, you really found this space in the world, especially with gambling, that needed a voice with experience, with uh, with credence in the industry. And it's been nice seeing your trajectory since we got to know each other a bunch of years ago, I think probably starting with the Tom Brady case four or five years ago. Yeah, thank you very much for saying that, Andrew. Uh, I really appreciate it coming from somebody who everyone pretty much in the sports law uh, community, you know, looks up to as one of the uh, real pillars of, of our community. So thank you. Uh, so getting to the topic at hand, which is the CBA and the post-mortem on the CBA, I'm kind of old enough to remember when, the when one, there wasn't a salary cap. And then two, when there was a salary cap, the players got in excess of 50% of the revenues. Even the 2006 deal, which ended in 2011, guaranteed the players 50%. What has happened over the last decade or so uh, where, where the players are ceding more and more and more ground? Uh, what, in your view, is the sort of the, the catalyst for that happening? Yeah, I mean, let's a lot to unpack there. Let's start with 06, I suppose. And that's when I was with the Packers. As you know, my time there, 10 years before I left the Packers, and right smack in the middle of that time was the CBA extension negotiated by Gene Upshaw and the NFL. And it's interesting because the past few weeks ago, they talked about, well, could free agency be pushed back with all this CBA stuff? 
Mm-hmm. And then with the virus stuff, and was there precedent for that? And of course there was precedent for that. We did it in 2006, not because of a crisis, but because of the same thing. CBA negotiations were going on. And lo and behold, a few days after the scheduled start of the league year, we did have a CBA. And now again, I'm on the team side back then. And I very vividly remember a conference call with all of us team executives and the NFL. And they explained the deal. <laughs> and I remember me and Bruce Allen and others, you know, we're just sort of we just sort of said, so what do we get? You know, it was almost like, wow, you know, the players had gotten a really good deal in 2006. And if people are, are not old enough to remember, it's certainly not the details, but in 06, 07 and even 08, player contracts sprung forward in a big way where the cap went up a tremendous amount. I mean, again, now it's going up $10 million, but you're at 180 to 190 and 190 to 200. Back then it went up $10 million from like, you know, 95 to 105. So, you know, it was a dramatic increase and players were really well served. So, they were so well served that now we can talk about the out and the out that the players didn't get in this current deal. The owners got an out in 2006 that after 2008, they could exercise their out. It would end in 2010 instead of 2013. And just for the reasons I just described, the owners said, we're getting out as soon as possible. We're getting out of this deal. And that soonest point was the end of 2010. And then we had new leadership, the NFLPA, and we had an out. And as you suggested, Dan, basically it was a different method of calculation of the cap, which I won't bore your listeners with in terms of DGR versus AR. <laughs> but the net, <laughs> the net net was net net was 50-50. So players 50%, owners 50%. Sounds like a good partnership. So that's what it was. And then lo and behold, we get to the 2011 negotiation, which, you know, I covered now I'm in the media working for ESPN and covering it more than any person in the country probably did. Maybe me and Albert Breer. And uh, basically it went from 50, 50 to 53, 47 um, in so many words. You know, the question you ask is a tough one to answer. It's why. Why? Well, I wish I knew why. The strategy the union took at that time was a strategy of litigation, of decertification, basically saying we're not a union because we're going to become an uh, individual antitrust litigants. And that was the strategy. And lo and behold, it worked for a while as I covered the lower court decision uh, in Minnesota, where the players won and basically had some momentum. But of course, the owners appealed to the Third Circuit, and here we were, uh, I'm sorry, the Eighth Circuit, and there we were in Kansas City at the Court of Appeals. Victory for the owners, and there was no sight of an end to a lockout ahead, and there was a hurriedly negotiated deal in July and August of 2011 that basically changed the revenue split from 50-50 to 53-47. A lot of other things were done in that negotiation too, where the players were fighting against the clawback from the owners. 
and the change the economics and it changed the way players you know received their their share of the revenues among other things back in 2011 so that was the prior deal before we get to the current deal how, how different do you think things would look today if the players had prevailed at the eighth circuit i mean i remember the lower court decision from the district of minnesota that basically ended the owner's lockout uh, the Eighth Circuit decision, I believe, was two to one. There was a dissenting judge. It was a three-zero. Uh, but regardless, what would the NFL economics look like today if the players had had the benefit of the leverage secured to them uh, through the courts? Well, I think the first thing to say is, which I didn't mention, as you know, the fact that the lockout was going to stay in place from the Third Circuit does not mean that case wouldn't go forward, right? So the case of Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Peyton Manning, all these people against the NFL could have gone forward in antitrust law. And you and I know as lawyers, a judge sees, hey, you've got a salary cap, you've got a draft, you've got restrictions on free agency, you win. But that would have taken years. And we had a locked out league. So the decision was made, we're not going to do that. So we got to get a deal done. But the question you ask is, had the Third Circuit said, basically that was all about the lockout. Had they said no more lockout, then they're negotiating while getting paychecks. And when you're negotiating while getting paychecks, you can be a lot firmer than you're when you're negotiating not getting paychecks. Uh, and so I think that was the problem. Way back you know, when Reggie White did the deal, uh, 1993, they were getting paid while negotiating. So it, it was a much different. But again, the strategy came from DeMaurice Smith and Jeffrey Kessler and the union leadership was we're pursuing litigation because we have a better chance through litigation than we do through negotiation. And, you know, again, we get back, we, we fast forward 10 years. It just seemed like that strategy took a 180 where in recent months, the feeling was, we're not thinking about litigation, we're going to negotiation, and not only negotiation, but negotiation a year plus in advance of expiration. So just two completely different strategies by the same leadership 10 years apart. Yeah, and it's interesting that D. Smith came into um, the, the NFLPA's executive director position with a strong background in litigation, and he was, uh, you know, touting himself as someone who's going to take it to the leagues and, and do battle. Even as recently as last year, uh, he was promising Armageddon. So what happened? Uh, take this round or take this recent CBA approval. It caught so many of us off guard. I think the conventional wisdom, my default <laughs> position was, oh, yeah, this is nice that they're talking, but it will come down to the 11th hour uh, with threats of litigation. Why was a deal struck so soon uh, without the players availing themselves of some of the leverage that they had. I don't know, Dan. I wish I knew. I just feel like um, there's got to be some backstories around here with this negotiation because, you know, what I keep hearing from players that were opposed to the deal, they weren't even talking about deal points necessarily. But the common refrain seemed to be, how did this happen? And the common refrain from union leadership is they've known about it. We've been at it for a year. We've been talking about it. We've been talking about it. And I think the key this in terms of how did this happen, 
the key this is 17 games because that is the story of the CBA. When scholars, when the UNIs of 50 years from now look back on the 2020 CBA, the headline is going to be 17 games. That's the headline of this deal. And I've talked to players on all levels. I've talked to superstars. I've talked to average players, veterans, and I've talked to young players and marginal players, practice squad. And they all sort of have this question, which they don't feel has been answered properly, which is, how did we go from 17 games being a non-starter and non-negotiable for the players to a year later, 17 games being a non-starter and non-negotiable as a yes for the owners? And, and no one's, you know, again, the, the union leadership will say, well, we talked about it. It's been part of the deal. We couldn't do a deal. Articles. Yeah. In, in your recent article on the iniquities of the proposed CBA, you highlight that if the 17th game was a non-negotiable point for the leagues, well, the players should have had their own non-negotiable point. And as I look through this 400-some-odd page document called the CBA and go through some of the highlights, uh, I'm, I'm at a loss to secure anything that rises to the level of a, of, of a significant economic gain other than very infinitesimal or marginal slight increase in the rev share by you know, 1 to 1.5%, depending upon when the 17-game schedule uh, takes effect. So what should the, what should the players' non-negotiable uh, point have been? A 50-50 split, as you, as you point out in the article? Well, that would have been it. You know, I, I think that's getting back to where we were 13 years ago, and why would that be so unreasonable to ask is something I would say. You know, and again, they could say the owner said no. Okay. You could say no to 17 games. We're not at a precipice here. And let's just put the virus aside because I think there's some back and forth comments you can make about the timing of the virus. Mm -hmm. I just wondered, as a lot of players did, what was the rush? You know, what was the rush? Because there seemed to be this feeling like if we turn this down in March of 2020, we're not going to get a deal in March of 2021. Or we're going to get a much worse deal or the owners are going to pack up their briefcases and rub our nose in it. And we're not going to talk to you for a year. And and my point is, why would they do that? Why would they do that? They want to get TV deals done. They need two things for the TV deals. They need 17 games and they need continuity of labor peace. And they're not going to get that without the players. So, yeah, maybe a year from now they get the same deal at worst, I guess. But to me, the players had leverage they didn't realize they had or they didn't realize enough that they had. And I don't I just don't get it. And and, you know, let's address a little bit of an elephant in the room about me. And I'm happy to address it because it seemed like my criticisms in the article you read and some of my Twitter comments and frankly, in some of the support I received from even retweets from players, the feeling was, oh, Brant, you know, must have an agenda. And some people in the media and otherwise seem to put that agenda as becoming the next executive director of the NFLPA and taking D. Smith's job. And I'm like, where is that coming from? Like, what? Mm-hmm. So the answer is no. <laughs> you know, I'm not seeking that job. 
I've been asked about that job over the years and I've never pursued it. And the, and the, and the continuing scratch my head is why, what is the agenda of those trying to put that as my agenda? So it was a personally, you know, disturbing is too strong a word, Dan. It was just a personally curious time for me where I'm like, where, what is going on here? I'm trying to be critical in the way that I'm critical throughout my media mm-hmm. career, which is use my background on both sides, hopefully be very reasonable and instinctual about it and be smart about it and never hot takes or never dressing people down. And I got that, especially yeah, yeah. from a couple of media members. And I didn't understand it. And frankly, I still don't. Yeah, and so, some of those media members who, whom I respect greatly also were quite forceful in their opinion on what the players should do. So yeah. I find I found that to be a disconnect that you were criticized and, and um, accused of having an agenda when those that were doing the accusing uh, were in my, you know, through my lens, somewhat, uh, I would say, aggressive in their stance as to why the players must accept this deal during the uncertainties and yeah. and fear surrounding the coronavirus. And, and, and it leads me to believe, why should any major decision like this that will affect players for a decade and, and impact a generation of football players, should a decision as important as that be made when everything else is going on as it was in society? Uh, the question that was asked uh, by, by many folks on Twitter and in, in the media, well, how come 500 eligible voters didn't bother to cast their vote? And I had two responses to that. Uh, there was a lot of other more important priorities going on at the time, and then to a lesser extent, why were there so many eligible voters? Uh, as, I've, as I've pointed out, um, there seemed to be an average of almost 80 voters per team. If you look at who the dues-paying members are and who's under contract, who's under a roster, who's actively seeking employment, but maybe they haven't played in a couple of years. So uh, I'm kind of getting a little uh, far afield here, but should the vote have actually gone down at the time that it did, given the, uh, the, 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 the increased uh, focus being placed throughout society on, on, our, on our health and the public safety? Were those the conditions under which a vote should have even been taken to begin with and maybe possibly delay it a few weeks? It's a great question. You know, there seemed to be this feeling like we got to get there. And as you said, a couple media members, a lot of media members, and I don't want to denigrate them because I don't want to be in the same game that I felt from from them is like seemed to be like really pushing like you got to vote yes now because the world's going to change and they're going to rub your nose in it. And you're going to go lockout and strike and all that. And again, lockout strike is 2021. There's n- mm. It wouldn't have affected one iota of NFL business in 2020. Mm. Not, a, not a single speck of business. Um, I think the real issue, you know, you talked about the 11 years, too. It's like we can talk about the split. We can talk about all these things. But why? Why so long? Yeah. You know, what, what is going on there where you can't have an out? And, you know, the owners, the reason we're in these kind of deals is because the owners got an out. What about the players getting an out, even if it's a mutual one? 
you know, all kinds of things you could sort of look at the deal. And listen, I understand negotiating with NFL owners is not easy. But I just thought that this deal could have been more, and I kept using the word equitable, equitable, Mm -hmm. you know, and because, listen, Dan, I know from doing player contracts, when you have a lopsided deal, it's no good. You know, when I, (laughs) when I feel, when I was young in my Packer career and I got over on agents and players with some lopsided deal, it always came back to haunt me always came back to haunt me player got upset the owner the relationship with the agents is bad mm-hmm. and later in my career you would think i'd be a more savvy negotiator and i was more easy because i wanted those relationships and i didn't want to you know really bear down on a negotiation like that with a good player so yeah but a player who um has outperformed his terrible contract always has the leverage of withholding his services yeah uh, a lousy collective bargaining agreement doesn't have an out and the players, what kind of recourse, I wouldn't mean legal recourse, but obviously there's going to be lingering bitterness for the next 11 years over this CBA. What are some of the, um, uh, what are some of the situations that could arise from, you know, the labor of uh, you know the inventory, the labor of the National Football League being disgruntled by their deal. Will will just the rise of the salary cap and a rising tide lifting all boats kind of you know solve all wounds, or will this somehow surface in other areas during the duration of this contract? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see because I think what you pointed out beyond the the mass of people voting for this and the five hundred that didn't vote. The real story of the vote was, you know, the vote was threefold. One, the executive committee, and I know you've talked on another podcast about Russell O'Kung's uh, problems with all this. Uh, they were against it. Two, the player reps, and they were for it on a lukewarm basis, 17 to 14 with one abstention. And then, as you said, it went to the full populace. And this, this point is, the, is the, maybe the key point of all. 50 votes or what was it 30 votes or whatever was the difference so forget the 500 it didn't vote it was 1019 to 959 or 969 and that swung it and i'm thinking what a way to walk into an 11 year deal and to only have half your half your audience interested in this deal to drag along a thousand players into a deal they voted against. And I think the real issue is going to be, first of all, this idea that it was stars versus the rank and file. That's total BS. Obviously they're not a thousand stars in the NFL that voted against this. So it's not just Aaron Rodgers and JJ Watt and, you know, and Richard Sherman and whoever the names that came out against it. Um, It's more than that. And we'll see. I mean, you know, will this dissension kind of will people feel like, you know, the NFL asked me to do X, Y, Z. I don't really feel like it. You know, they got over the CBA on us or or maybe it's some some discomfort with the union about doing something there. So these are all things we're going to have to see as time goes on. Yeah. Do do you think the NFL PA leadership and I'm not talking about necessarily DeMaurice Smith, but. The NFLPA has um, executive committee, a board of representatives. 
where was the gatekeeping function that they're supposed to fulfill? I mean, yeah, the NFLPA's constitution has several layers of leadership, an executive committee and a board of representatives. They're supposed to serve a gatekeeping function uh, to, you know, basically, you know, pass a muster or, or approve sending, uh, you know, a deal to the membership that they sign off on themselves. And here we had two layers, an executive council twice uh, voting against it and a board of representatives that didn't see fit to recommend passage of the CBA. Um, should the NFLPA's constitution require that level? I think it already does. But how can a, can a, a proposed deal like this be forwarded to a membership when the, uh, when the leadership didn't sign off on this? How, how could that be? Is this, have you ever heard of a labor negotiation in professional sports where that has happened? No, I mean, listen, I'm not even, I don't even understand the Constitution part of who reports to who. And maybe you, from your earlier conversation, understand this better than I do. Does the ED, executive director, report to the EC, executive council, or vice versa? Because if it's if it's the ED reporting to the EC and the EC was against the CBA, mm. how does that happen? How does the ED then push ahead with the CBA? Because everything I heard about the EC was they were six to five against it, then they were seven to four against it. And of course, Okung is making a big deal about what was presented to him or not as the EC. Um, so we'll see. Now I know they have a new, a new, uh, president in JC Treader and we'll see, he talks about unity, but that's, seems like a tall task right now. Okay. Let's, uh, I, I mean, I want to get back to some of the other points we raised, but I want to turn to gambling for a second. Uh, how big of a deal is the specific inclusion of gambling related revenues from both, you know, betting on the games sponsorships, and maybe even non-NFL-related gambling revenues uh, from on-site operations. How significant is that going to be in terms of growing the pie? Well, I think we're at, the, you know, we're at this precipice, again, where the gambling revenues, we don't know what that's going to be. We don't know how big it's going to be. We're still just two years away from the Supreme Court decision, and we're going to see where that goes. It was another one of my points about potentially having an out, uh, an opt out of the CBA in a couple of years, three, four, even five years to see where we are on gambling. As I read the CBA, and I, I'm sure you read it the same way, there's 100 percent of gambling revenues in season in stadium are included in AR, all revenues. So the formula that calculates the cap. Off-season, it goes down to 50%, and then 33%, mm. I believe, for non-football events. Non-events not related to the team at all. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, I don't know what that number is going to be. We hear about uh, some in-sports books, in-arenas coming. And, you know, I don't have a sense of what kind of revenue that is. It's one of those things, again, where you have to look deeper. I was initially mm. under the impression that all gambling revenues were equally shared with players or put into the formula for AR. But then again, reading deeper, we see it's that 100 to 50 to 33% mm. layered. 
Yeah, Andrew, I think the PA oversold the utility of having gambling revenues specifically delineated as as AR. Uh, in my reading of the 2011 CBA, uh, you can make a pretty open and shut case that most gambling revenues associated with the games uh, would be included within AR anyway. So I think all that this deal did was uh, specifically delineate something that was already um, inferentially part of the you know earlier CBA. I don't think that much was added to the pot, even if it's more, even if it's clearer. I don't even think it was arguable that the players would not be able to claim that uh, gambling revenues are part of AR. I think the players always had the upper hand in that argument, and I don't I don't know that they understood that because that seems to be one of the one of the selling points that the PA made in, in its side-by-side -side comparison of the 2011 deal to the current proposal. They, they actually tout that as one of the economic benefits on the first page of their of their side-by-side -side comparison. I think the players already had that. Mm, that's interesting. That's an interesting comment, yeah. Yeah, all right, well, let's talk about uh, the, the, the media's approach to this and, and just fan sympathies. I think one of the obstacles that the players have uh, always had to face was the court of public opinion was never would never be on their side. Uh, you have millionaires negotiating against billionaires, and one would think that the public would always be aligned with labor. And I've been somewhat uh, mystified by the lack of what I would consider public support for organized labor because they're viewed through the prism of the few millionaire athletes who might have it on easy street. Yeah. Do you think the lack of public, um, I would say the, 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 the lack of a strong public support for union positions could have played a role in the players not digging in their heels and fighting, uh, you know, going forward? I don't know how much public opinion played a role. I do think that, you know, there's, the the this feeling that owners always have leverage is is even more out there than it used to be somehow you know what i suspected dan was a real for lack of a better word resignation from the public like they'll never stick together there's too many of them mm -hmm. the owners are billionaires they'll wait them out uh it almost felt like, you know, just get whatever you can if you're a player, a union, and you should be happy with it. And this feeling, you know, different than NBA players or MLB players who there's a general feeling, oh, yeah, they can push it because they're, they're, they have guaranteed contracts or they're stronger or this or that. And this kind of resignation about NFL players and their leadership, like, yeah, you know, they're, they're just... There are too many of them and too many injuries and they'll never stick together. You hear that all the time. They're, they'll never strike. They'll never do what it takes to get better income. I just feel like, well, why do we why do we even have negotiators that, you mm -hmm. know, like if they're just going to take whatever they're given, like, I don't know. I, I feel it more now than in past years, almost this kind of resignation that NFL owners will get what they want no matter how much of a fight players do or don't put up. Oh, I, I think the uh, 2011 uh, litigation where the players got an injunction and then yeah. they lost on appeal, I think the weakening of the Norris-LaGuardia Act 
may have played some role here. I mean, the players don't have a legitimate um, expectation as the courts become more conservative, uh, more conservative judges, and then you have the barrier posed by the Norris LaGuardia Act. If the players can't resort to the courts, uh, what kind of leverage do they ultimately have other than withholding their services? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, this time they had the leverage of the owners desperately wanting to make TV deals. Now, obviously, Mm -hmm. they're not going to do it in this climate now with the virus. But at the time, that was what we heard. They want to get to the TV deals. And then there was this feeling like, oh, well, they can go with the TV deals without a player deal. I'm like, really? Because without a player deal, you don't have labor peace. And you have no idea whether you're getting 17 games or not anytime soon. So I just think, uh, you know, the players had some leverage. Maybe they felt they didn't have it like I thought they did. All right. Well, listen, I have one uh, one final, uh, I guess, look ahead that I want to cover with you. Uh, we've got 11 more years to go in this deal uh, by large measure. Uh, no one who's playing on an NFL roster or very few people who are on an NFL roster today will be playing under the terms of the 2030 you know, deal, the, the current deal, which lasts until 2030. So looking ahead for the 11-year-old uh, junior high school football player who's going to come into the NFL in 2031, what steps can, <laughs> can labor take going forward to, re, to, I don't know if it's to overhaul uh, the, the Players Association, to grab back power from the executive leadership or, or the, 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 the staff leadership. But are we just simply now on a pause for the next 11 years? Uh, or can the players do something to bring more accountability, more transparency, and, and, and more accountability to the process in which the players uh, you know, manage you know, their labor relations? Because we're going we're gonna to face the same D Smith, in 11 years. D. Smith's going to go on, t- on TV, on HBO, and tell Brian Gumbel, you know, billionaires beat millionaires every time. This is the deal we had to take. Is this simply going to be, uh, you know, history repeating itself every 10 years? What could be done? You know, it's always harder to negotiate something new than keep something the same. And that's the problem. You know, like baseball doesn't have a salary cap. And everyone asks me, well, why don't I have a salary cap? Because I'm because they never even try anymore. You know, they don't even try in negotiations with CBA for the players. Players got it. No cap. And they're not going to give up. No cap. And now the owners got cap. They got free agency restrictions. They got their draft. They got their revenue split. How do you get it back? Ah, that's the question. I just think that like everything, you need players to join forces and say enough. You know, not that not join forces and say, oh, my God, they're going to lock us out next year. Oh, my God, we're, we're going to they're going to rub our nose in it. They're, we're going to walk away from this deal and never talk to us again. Mm-hmm. Somehow players got to be stronger and, and it has to come from leadership of veteran, high ranking, high income players. And again, I'll get to that point again, which I didn't make, which is Russell Wilson, J.J. Watt, Aaron Rodgers, Richard Sherman, etc., they all could have said, yeah, take the deal. I mean, we're fine either way. You know, they could have said, yeah, why not? Doesn't affect us. But they're the ones strongest against the deal because it's not about them. They're going to make their tens of millions no matter what. It's about they see 
as leaders, this is not the right deal for the whole populace. And again, I, I don't, I don't know what they're thinking, but if they really were not caring, they would have said, yeah, take the deal. We're fine either way. But they said, don't take the deal. So I think you get people in positions like that who can actually wield power instead of sort of fall back behind, you know, mm -hmm. leadership that's saying one thing where they don't have you on board. You know, I don't know how it works in a step-by-step -step basis, but I do think there's going to be enough players, hopefully, that say we're not going to take it anymore. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I have a bonus round question before I let you go. You've been in many draft war rooms. Yeah. You know what it's like to um, operate an NFL draft from both uh, management side and, and, and from being a player agent. Uh, is the NFL being responsible here by holding the NFL draft April 23rd to April 25th when when thousands and thousands of new cases of coronavirus every day, you know, the, the New York City and New York State numbers are just unreal. Should the NFL be having a draft in April when the league season may not even be starting up in September? Uh, do you have a feeling as to how uh, realistic uh, something like this can be implemented without creating additional health risks to those involved? Yes, and I just wrote about this for my SI article this week. I mean, the NFL is moving forward, and they had free agency. I think they were emboldened, Dan, by the mm -hmm. new CBA, so they went and had free agency right away. It was kind of a modest, in my view, free agency, only about five or six contracts mm -hmm. that kind of raised your eyebrows. Um, and now they're going ahead with the draft, obviously virtual, but scheduled dates, and yeah, I mean, listen, you can do the draft virtually. It's not a big deal. You know, I think these people worried about IT issues and freezing mm -hmm. computers. Come on. You know, this is the NFL. They'll, they'll get that done. The one area uh, of the draft that I think will be very different is undrafted free agency because my experience, does, that's that hour and a half after the draft where teams sign up all these undrafted guys. That'll be harder because that's usually a bunch of scouts come in the room and coaches like, Let's get this guy, let's get, and they're negotiating, and it's frenzied. And, you know, when you're not together, that's going to be much harder. People are going to be giving away money they shouldn't give away. They're going to sign players that this guy didn't think they were signing. You're going to have too many running backs, whatever it is. That's going to be in play probably. But in terms of virus impact, they're the one league that's like, hey, we're giving the people what they want, normalcy. And... uh you know, I, you, I've tried to push back against that, not because I, I don't agree you need some normalcy, but I think, you know, the death tolls. I mean, it's just it's a weird time, but I think this is all in the name of things are going to in their thinking. Things are going to be a lot different in 60, 90 days. We're playing. So we got to get prepared to play. That's yeah, personally. Personally, I think they could have uh, postponed this and revisited every 15 or 30 days. Once there's no venue involved and you don't have Radio City Music Hall or a specific you know, brick-and-mortar venue, uh, then the league can kind of conduct this on its own schedule uh, and, and, and revisit this every interim period and still leave plenty of time to sign players and you know, get them into camp later on. There was no need other than this notion that we all need a respite from you know self-quarantining and and social distancing but right. i think that that's far less important 
than the health of those involved who stage the draft and participate in the draft uh, and attend, want to attend draft parties or, or, you know, it's a communal process. And as much as the NFL would like to make it all virtual and, you know, by telephone or by internet, uh, there's still uh, a level of interaction that's done uh, on the team side, on the on the player side, the scout side, the media. There are going to be several thousand people who are part of the workforce surrounding an NFL draft. And I personally don't think it's necessary at this juncture. And it undoubtedly creates at least some greater than zero added health risk. You're uh, you're barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> I mean, the NFL is going forward. I've tried well, to raise these issues. I tried to raise them about free agency. And uh, they're like, no, no, we're going forward. Will we see games this year? That's a great question. Uh, I'm going to say yes, but not sure when they start and not sure if they start with fans. Okay. Well, Andrew, uh, this has been, for me personally, an honor. I've come a long way. I was a litigator in a Florida law firm five years ago. And look at me today. I'm interviewing Andrew Brandt for a podcast. I I could now die in peace. So thank <laughs> you very much for joining me on Conduct Detrimental. It was a, a pleasure to have um, the opportunity to, to converse with you. And I, I learned quite a bit. And I, I hope to have you on again soon. You're certainly one of the most insightful commentators on both the business and legal side, not just of the NFL, but sports generally. And uh, it's always awesome to get a chance to talk to you. So uh, I wish you and your family you know, health and the best of luck surviving this. And hopefully things will get back to normal. And I could see you in person one of these days at the Sports Lawyers Association annual conference <laughs> or at some other event. Yes, Dan, that's very kind of you. Thanks so much. And you and your wife stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, we'll see you on the other side of this. Absolutely. Enjoy the rest of your day, Andrew. We'll talk soon. Thanks. That wraps up another episode of Conduct Detrimental, the sports law podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and like the content that we're providing, please, if you don't mind, give us a, a good review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Facebook, Twitter, Google Play, SoundCloud, or any of the other platforms in which you receive the best-in-class podcasting content. Uh, I would personally appreciate it. It helps us build the audience, and we will be back soon with another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Until next time, case dismissed and the jury is excused. Uh, have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. This podcast is sponsored by Wallach Legal, LLC, the country's first sports betting-focused law firm representing clients all across this great land in matters relating to gaming law, sports wagering law, sports law, and yes, even litigation, uh, including appellate litigation. If you have any questions about the show or suggestions for future topics or guests, or if you just want to be a guest yourself, or you're looking to hire a lawyer, you can reach me in either of two ways. First, follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Wallach Legal. That's at W-A-L-L-A-C-H-L-E-G-A-L. That's all uppercase, although I don't think it makes a difference. Or you can send me an email at the following email address. 
wallachlegal at gmail.com. That's W-A-L-L-A-C-H-L-E-G-A-L at gmail.com. Thank you.